Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're sitting today with Cherry Jones, who is one of the stars of John Patrick Shanley's Doubt, which just recently won the Pulitzer Prize for, for drama, and Cherry herself a nominee for Best Actress this year in a play. Cherry, welcome. Thank you so much, John and Cherry, Howard. You, you play a, a rather stern figure, a very domineering nun who is convinced of the guilt of a parish priest of child molestation. Yes, I do. Hence the title of the show, Doubt. Yeah. But yeah. you were raised Methodist in Tennessee. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How do you prepare to play a role of a, of a, uh, of a Catholic nun in the, in the Bronx, in a grammar school in the Bronx? Well, first you learn the Hail Mary real good. <laughs> <laughs> my, my greatest fear is that I'm going to one night accidentally change a word in the Hail Mary and 300 people en masse, pardon the pun, are going to correct me. But uh, – uh, John has made this character so clear in the writing of the the strength and the rigor of this woman's mind. And uh, honestly, for me, the hardest part, because we had a wonderful um, assistant to our brilliant director, Doug Hughes, who brought in uh, lots of tapes of Father Sheehan and... and uh, uh, background history on the Sisters of Charity, which is the order that Sister Aloysius um, belongs to. and and uh, uh, But for me, it was trying to... I have a, a bit of a soft, flabby mind, and Aloysius is sharp as a tack and uh, absolutely certain about most things in her life. And uh, so I had to... I had to exercise the muscles in my brain to get up to speed with this woman. Uh, she really is an extraordinary human being. I mean, she's a little crazy in certain areas, but she knows uh, what she believes. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Shanley has said that when the greatest tectonic shifts are going on, under the surface in people's lives, it often is when they seem absolutely most certain. So there's a lot of movement in this woman, and he gives her a real arc uh, throughout the play, and there is a sort of a stunning ending that I, I don't want to give away, but uh, to not. her character. Yeah. We've read, certainly, there's been a great deal written about doubt since it first opened off Broadway in the fall. But we've we've read, certainly, about the fact that Heather Goldenhirsch's character, the young nun in the play, is based very specifically on a nun who John Shanley had as a teacher when he was going through parochial schools mm -hmm. as a youth. And, in fact, that nun is still a nun and is in New York and has come to see the show. Is there a specific basis for the character you're playing? I imagine at this point she'd be much older, but has John talked to you about any particular individual or are you an amalgam of experience? You know what? I think there actually might have been a Sister Aloysius who was principal of the school when he first uh, attended in, in first grade or something, but she was quickly replaced by a Sister Lavaray who everyone seemed to be very fond of. But um, I think he sort of did an amalgam of uh, of the two, of Sister Lavaray and and uh, Sister Aloysius. But I think there might have he's um, he cannot resist using 
actual names. <laughs> in fact, the only changes in the script when we were in rehearsals, he kept trying to fictionalize the names of uh, of the children in the school who were mentioned. And then finally, he ended up actually using real names. And mm. one day at Manhattan Theater Club, we were in a scene and I heard an unusual little giggle, House Left. And uh, I go through a list of names, Stephen Enzio, Noreen Haran, and Brenda McNulty. And it was because Noreen Haran was there that day. (laughs) (laughs) And he really couldn't think of any other names to to replace them with. I guess in his mind, he he pictured them. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He tried really hard, but it just – it didn't happen. Now, it is – you know, well-known, the, the stereotype of, of Catholic nuns in parochial schools being very stern, wrapping the, mm-hmm. the knuckles and all that. Um, how does one keep this from becoming too much of a stereotype or a parody and keep it being focused as a real, honest nun who really could exist and probably did? Well, you know, again, it's back to the power of the writing uh-huh. and the seriousness of the subject. And it is a parable. This play is a parable. And, uh, what, how, do, how do we know that or how do we respond to it since well, he calls it a parable? I, I think that you – when the audience first comes in, they think it is, it is a, a, another play about uh, uh, s- sexual abuse in, in the Catholic Church. It's certainly church. not a docudrama. No, it's not. And that's the event of the play. But then it becomes about something much larger than the actual event and whether he's guilty or not. And uh, I'm not particularly comfortable – talking about the the play intellectually because as the actress playing Sister Aloysius, I have so uh, immersed myself in her positions that I've never had the privilege of watching the play, coming to it fresh. Even when I first read the play, I read it knowing I was going to be playing Aloysius. So I already came to it with the the prejudiced mind of of Aloysius and I gave it to my father in Tennessee to read and the minute he finished the play he tossed it onto the coffee table and he said well he's completely innocent <laughs> and when I had read it I I, I certainly believed that he was not but it, be, it becomes a uh, uh, an interesting um, I, I don't even know what to call it I mean the audience goes wild with each other and their own uh, very strong certain beliefs at the end of the play of what did or did not happen. And only a handful of people leave the theater actually in doubt, which is why John wrote the play in the first place. Do you, think, think. Do you think the audience splits along gender lines or does it not? No, that's what's so interesting. You can never, ever determine which way the audience is going to go, you know, regardless of sex or, or uh, uh, religious affiliations or, or you just – or race or – you don't know. The only demographic that seems often – I'd say nine times out of ten to – go with Sister Aloysius are young mothers huh. of young children, which is interesting. I just, think. just for the audience who may not be familiar with the show, it's basically um, between Sister Aloysius and, and the young priest. She accuses him of child molestation. He vehemently denies it. And there are enough different plot mechanisms to cast doubt in one's mind as to which way the story really is, yeah. whether he really has molested or has not, yeah. depending on what you see in the show, I guess. And audience members are flabbergasted that the person next to them, often their own spouse, uh-huh. is absolutely sure of the opposite position mm-hmm. than their own. And they cannot – the minute the curtain comes down, we take our, we take our curtain call, we walk off – 
and the lights go up in the house, and I've never heard such a din in an audience before because they get right into it P- with each other. People debating it, arguing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so the audience debates it, but you and I had an opportunity to talk about this a couple of weeks ago, and you said that at a certain point in rehearsals, Brian O'Byrne, who plays the priest, and John Shanley, and I don't recall if you said if Doug Hughes was in this, but, but Brian and John went off, and they decided what Brian needed as to whether, in fact, he'd done this or not. Yeah. But you don't know what that discussion was. Yeah. As as the actor, of course, Brian had to know exactly what went on in the rectory, and not only in the rectory, but in the last three parishes, and in fact, the entire character's background. He had to know what he was playing and what he was protecting or not protecting. Uh-huh. And um, we, of course, couldn't. We, it was so helpful not to know. And uh, he he plagues us with his knowledge sometimes. So you still do not know to this day whether or not the priest is guilty or not? Don't have a clue. It, but it we've made Brian swear that when we when this cast leaves the play, because I think this play <laughs> is going to run for I I think quite a long time, uh-huh. that he'll he'll tell us the minute the minute we leave the stage that night after curtain call, he's to tell but, us immediately. <laughs> but 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 will he make you sign a confidentiality agreement? Oh I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Because it would alter. This is not only a play that we expect will be around a good long time but on Broadway, but it will have multiple productions. It's going to be seen in many different versions, not with this cast, not with Doug Hughes, and directing it. And do you think that will – if that knowledge ever got out, do you think it would alter the way the play is played or viewed? What's so – again, another fascinating aspect of this play is that John, I think, will always leave it up to the – director and the actor playing the part because I don't think it matters to him the guilt or innocence of this man. That's not what's interesting to him. And uh, I, I, I asked that question once. I said, do you think there'll be a little footnote to the actors playing this role of what they should be playing? And I, he's, he's never going to do that. He leaves it all up to us to, and he just happened to be around to discuss uh, what happened. But I think he really left it up to Brian and Doug to come up. And I find it fascinating as an actor to try to figure out what the real story is because I think they chose what is most interesting for Brian as an actor to play. And I have my theory of what that is, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to divulge <laughs> oh, oh, it now. On. No, no, no. <laughs> but with all of the uncertainty and and the the audience not knowing and not agreeing on where it goes in terms of what has happened in terms of the plot, you are playing a character who who comes from a place of absolute certainty for certainly the vast majority of the play. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you hear from audience members. What do they think of this character? Because I must admit I was struck <clears throat> as the play progressed by how unyielding a character you're playing. You kept waiting for her – to soften and it wasn't coming. Well, it's it just again it varies from your um, experience as a I've had many different Catholics talk to me about it and and uh, some Catholics absolutely have total respect for this woman and her standards and I've had some Catholics say I wish she had been my principal. I wish we had had someone who would go to bat like that for the children. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, she every everything she does, except maybe the Frosty the Snowman segment, mm-hmm. is is for the strengthening of 
the children and the younger nuns around her. Uh, she wants to give them the discipline and the rigor to make their own decisions uh, with clarity and with strength. And then I've had other Catholics who just want to strangle Sister Aloysius. They hate her. One one woman at the end of, of the play one night as the the lights went down on my face after the final lines of the play said, may she burn in hell, you know. <laughs> wow. So you just don't know. I think often – uh, Jewish audiences will will think she's a Joe McCarthy or – and I will defend her against McCarthyism. She's not there for her own personal power as Joe McCarthy was. She is there trying to protect the children. Whether it's misguided or not, we don't know. But that is her – that's her greatest uh, uh, responsibility in life and uh, she's going to do it no matter what. Now, what sort of reaction do you get from Catholic clergy, from priests and nuns? Oh, they love it. They love it. They love it. And again, it's varied. I mean, one priest came up to me and said, "You, I've had enemies like you. <laughs> and then uh, another priest told Brian that every bishop in the Catholic Church should see this play because he said as, a, as an innocent priest having to walk down the streets in this country now, having people look with suspicion at, at, at a man in the collar – he said it's so un- – he, he said only a small percentage of priests got into trouble, yeah, the, the 4 percent or whatever. But he said that that almost every bishop in the country was somehow complicit because they moved the guys around, mm. you know. And so he said the bishops of this country should see this play. But do you think it is a political play in that sense or is it – because that goes back to the specificity of incidents of – Certainly not just recent years, but 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 what has been a news gripped from the headlines discussion. Well, Yet I, going back to the idea that this is a parable and it's something larger. I mean, I think it's much larger than the Catholic Church, and I think it's John's um, own dismay at a country in which we now shout at one another from our entrenched positions and no longer listen to one another. And he said years ago, people with doubt and uncertainty were were considered wise people and now they're considered weak people. We're, we all are expected to know what we believe and know that we're right and that it's true. And uh, we need to be able to step back and uh, have reasonable discourse with one another, which involves allowing ourselves to sit comfortably again with with not always being sure and certain. We have to have open minds, in other words. And no one in the audience has to leave that theater and go home and make a call that is going to uh, save a child or, or save a priest. They just have to sit there and watch it and make their own decision. But they still, most of the audience leaves knowing absolutely certain about one way or the other. One way or the other. Yeah. And what's interesting yeah. is... In spite of the recent headlines about things going on in the church, this is set four decades ago, 1964, yeah. as I recall. So it's like implying this has been happening not just recently but for many, many years. Well, and of course, many of the, the actual – if we go back to the specificity of what the the event of the play is, so many of those uh, uh, court cases and civil cases began with priests in the early 60s. It, John was very – uh, smart in placing it right after Vatican II, where suddenly the priest turned and faced 
the congregants, and and uh, it became uh, the the time of folk masses and trying to humanize the clergy, and uh, no longer is just simply emissaries from Rome, and it it became a, a a very confusing time for older Catholics who missed their Latin masses and missed the the rigor of of the church, and then the younger Catholics who uh, enjoyed a, a more open and uh, I mean, there's a speech that the priest has in, in doubt that Brian delivers about uh, that he wants people to think of priests more like members of their family rather than emissaries from Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a great dividing watershed moment for the Catholic Church. That, uh, and I think it's part of the reason why a lot of young priests did get into trouble because uh-huh. everything everything had changed suddenly. It sounds like you've learned quite a bit about Catholicism in the Catholic Church. Well, the wonderful thing about Catholics is they love to talk about <laughs> about not only the the church but about their nuns. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. I've I've heard so many great stories about nuns all my life even though I grew up in a in a small West Tennessee town with one very tiny Catholic church with no nuns anywhere in sight, uh-huh. you know. Now, did, did you do any – in pre- uh, preparing for the role, any research? Did you go to attend mass? Did you visit Catholic schools, that sort of thing? Well, I've been to, to many Catholic masses in my life oh, and traveled years. in Europe uh-huh. and gone uh-huh. to yeah. – uh, so I didn't really – I wanted to um, – I often don't like to go to uh, – Heather actually went up to the school that John attended as did, of course, our set designer. It's a carbon copy of the principal's office really? in that in that school. Yeah, e- even nowadays. Even nowadays, wow. yeah, yeah. He took lots of photographs, and it's, and it's the, a very austere, kind of like forties or fifties looking yeah, office. Like yeah, it hadn't changed late forties, decades, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and uh, but I I like to just get caught up with what the playwright has given me, and it was so rich that I didn't have to do a lot of of. Going to to different uh, parishes and yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned it, so I want to I want to come back to it. Um, how do you go from being a girl from a small West Tennessee town <laughs> to being one of the great dramatic leading ladies of Broadway? Now, uh, I read that your mom was an English teacher, and so uh-huh. something about your grandmother being a drama teacher. No, Fafan wasn't a drama teacher, oh. but she wanted me to be an actress. The more problems of the internet and, and the, for information, exactly. yeah. No, she she was a, a wonderful woman who loved movies and loved theater, although she rarely got to see any theater in her lifetime because there wasn't much – she had no access in West Tennessee. But uh, she – oh, she loved the movies and she really wanted me to be an actress. And from the time I was a little girl, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And my parents were incredibly supportive and um, sent me to – uh, a summer high school program at Northwestern University when I was 16 where I got to meet for the first time peers who also wanted to uh, become professional actors. And then uh, after high school, I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and got a BFA there and then came to New York and and uh, scooped ice cream up at 72nd in Columbus and got to wait on a lot of my idols. I mean Maureen Stapleton came in one day, and I had seen the second preview of Gin Game after she had taken over in Gin Game, and I, I remember saying, "Oh, Miss Stapleton, you were you were just extraordinary." And 
And she just sort of said, when did you see it? I said, the second preview. And literally her eyes just rolled back in their, her head and she sort of went staggering out of the, out of the restaurant because she just didn't even want to think that anyone had seen that performance. It's so funny. <laughs> but even for scooping ice cream here in New York, it seemed you really got taken up at the American Repertory Theater, yep. which gave you an extraordinary range of opportunities. Which gave me my education. I, I was a – this was before – they have a, an Actors Institute there now. But um, I got taken on as a full company member when I was 23. I got brought up to play Rosalind and As You Like It. Didn't have an idea in the world what I was doing because I hadn't had enough Shakespeare training. And this is right when ART began up at Harvard? Yes. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that is where I, I, I was there for uh, six out of ten seasons all through the 80s. And by the time I was about 33, I felt I could hang out my shingle as an actor. Everything else had been a glorious apprenticeship. And I got to play about 25 roles with remarkable directors and uh, an incredibly strong company. Uh, Tony Shaloub was a member of that company, and or Tony Shalob, as people may know him from Monk, and uh, Tommy Dara, and Karen McDonald, and Jeremy Guide, and Alvin Epstein, and uh, really doing heavily classical work. The occasional yeah, new play in yeah. that period, but but really major classical major, roles. A lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Chekhov, and Ibsen, and and then you make your Broadway debut in Stepping Out. Well. You know, interesting twist. It was an interesting twist, and uh, uh, I got to learn how to tap rather badly. I might probably add. not something Bob Brewstein required in no, his actors no. up at ART. Was but tap Marge lessons. Champion and Tommy Toon taught me how to tap, so it was the greatest. Uh, uh, you know, I and really not well. I, I was the worst tapper in the show. They were very sweet to hire me because I have two left feet. But mm-hmm. it was a fun introduction to the Broadway community. How did you get that, that, that role though? You had not been on Broadway. You self-proclaimed not a dancer, not a tap. Well, I had a very uh, sweet cherubic face and uh, <laughs> and this do. sort of large woman's hulking body at that point. Uh, and I, 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 uh, I guess I just was sweet and dear. It was a very sweet and dear part and I just came in and, and, and uh, I, but he almost didn't hire me because he didn't think I'd ever be able to learn how to tap. But he told me that later. <laughs> But then you – your real breakthrough I think for a lot of people came when you did Our Country's Good on Broadway, which was actually your third show. You'd done uh, production of the Scottish play uh, before that. Um, can you talk about the Our Country's Good experience because it really brought you a lot of attention, brought you your first Tony nomination. But it was very fast put in of that show and you were joining an existing production that had moved in from Hartford Stage. Yeah, but it was um, – uh a, a beautiful production of a Timberlake Wurtenbacher Wurtenbaker play called uh, Our Country's Good, and it, it was about the penal co- a penal colony from um, Great Britain, one of the first penal colonies to Australia. So a shipment of convicts, and uh, we had a two week rehearsal, um, and uh, the the cast had been doing it up in Hartford, and Peter Frechette and I came in. Uh, for the Broadway production, and uh, it was uh, I basically just I, I there was something about that character. It's an incredible character. She's the very slow and very brutish, 
uh, Liz Morton. We should we should tell people that the for those who don't know the play, it's the story, a true story, uh, at least in outline of the first play produced in the penal colony in Australia, a production of the recruiting officer, done by these convicts, and the character that you played was perhaps the least likeliest actor in the history theatrical of theater. history. Yes, yes. So yeah. let me let you take it back from there. Uh, but, I, you know, there's not a lot to say except that it was very, very quick and I, I had a great rapport with the character and the cast was marvelous. A lot of people that I – Jay Smith Cameron and Amelia Campbell and people that I'm still uh, friends with today, Peter Frechette as I said and Anthony uh, – oh, no, what am I saying? Uh, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> you know? We'll you, stop the list one, there. Yeah, thank you. But um, it was uh, – they – embraced us and made us feel at home and uh, I uh, I never really understood why uh, Helen Carey had been replaced. Everyone in the cast worshipped her. She was the mother of the company and uh, um, I don't know if it was an artistic th- – I don't know why she was replaced but um, I had to wear shackles at one point in the play and Helen's name – was still in the shackles that I wore every night and I never took her name out of there because I felt like it was a a I was drawing my strength from her because uh, she was so revered by the company. And from there, I mean you've been doing off-Broadway work and regional work, but fairly quickly then then one of the next shows up for you after that was the Baltimore Waltz Paul yeah. Waltz play. And that was the beginning of what looks like a trifecta of Paula Vogel plays for you in fairly short order. Yeah. How did you come to be working so much with Paula? And obviously Paula must have decided you were an actress who was right for what she was writing. Well, you know, she – I don't think she really knew my work when I first got Baltimore Waltz. She had decided she wanted Anne Bogart to direct Baltimore Waltz for Circle Rep and – I had just done uh, Calderon's Life is a Dream up at the American Repertory Theater with Anne. And so Anne had me in mind and and uh, um, we sat down in that room with Paula Vogel working on this beautiful, delicate play that was written uh, out of her love for her brother who had died of AIDS a few years before. And uh, it was just one of those – and Joe Mantello was uh, the third man – and Richard Thompson was uh, uh, Carl. And uh, we all just kind of fell in love together. It was one of those very special experiences that, and one of those productions that when people come up to me and say they saw that, we always just end up hugging immediately because it, uh, it was such a beautiful production of that play. And then um, Paula started pulling out uh, plays that she had written uh, prior to the Baltimore Waltz and because the Baltimore Waltz had been received uh, so warmly, Circle Rep produced, uh, let's see what, and Baby Make Seven, which was uh, not received particularly well, and uh, uh, Desdemona, a play about a handkerchief, which was her riff on uh, Desdemona from Othello. And your second play, which was a riff on Othello. Correct? Oh right, uh, an odd, an odd thing because yeah. you've also been in Good Night, Desdemona, Good Morning, Julie. Yes, yes, great minds think alike, and this was a, a fun, sweet sort of extended skit of a play uh, written by Anne Marie Macdonald, a Canadian woman uh, who's a novelist now of great note, and um, 
we had the most amazing cast. We had a very young Liev Schreiber. We had Robert Joy. We had Sandra McLean and a very young Hope Davis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, talk about having fun going to work. And I played this little um, academician who literally falls into into the real world of Othello, but of course knowing the play backwards and forwards as a an English lit academician and um, saves Desdemona at the end of that play and then falls into the real world of Romeo and Juliet and uh, uh, where both Romeo and Juliet, played by Liev and Hope, fall in love with me. So it was just a delicious experience. <laughs> Interesting. You, you're currently working with John Patrick Shanley in Dowd, working with Paula Vogel, both Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights. Yeah. How do you pick the shows you're in or do they pick you? I have always depended on the kindness of artistic directors <laughs> uh-huh. and directors and that wonderful thing of just having been around long enough that, that you know, I tell young people that if you just show up and you're pleasant and you know your lines and people know your game – it's going it, to – you know, people are going to just keep hiring you because uh, – uh, and, and I honest to goodness think I, I, I didn't have a lot of skill when I began but I had great enthusiasm and there was no place else I wanted to be on this earth but in a rehearsal room. And uh, and Shanley, I, I still don't know how I got the job for doubt honestly. I, I know I was at least third on the list and uh, Doug – Shanley didn't know my work at all. I think he'd seen me in a, in a Major Barbara at some point. And, and you also didn't know him personally? No, because I, I just never did uh, – it wasn't sort of my genre of, uh-huh. of play. And uh, so Doug convinced him that I could do it and then I, I then had to convince myself. Well, we should I say could. that the character is written at least 10 years older than you are. It's it's not like some, you're exactly the person people think of when they when they if they came upon this script the first time. Yeah, uh, she's she's probably in her early sixties, and I've made her even more infirm than than she. I, I Shanley does a marvelous thing in the script. He makes Sister Aloysius uh, have she she was married as a younger woman and has lost her husband in World War II. So she has a, a worldliness. She she understands human sexuality in a way that um. A chaste, sixty-two-year-old nun would not, and uh, I, I wanted, I wondered why she never had children, and so I decided that she uh, had had a hysterectomy as a young woman, and that uh, as a sixty-two-year-old woman in nineteen sixty-four, she was already suffering from osteoporosis, pretty advanced <laughs> osteoporosis, because I wanted the dynamic of a, a will that was so strong. In, in actually a rather frail uh, body because she I, – I have her sort of slightly stooped and, uh, you know, she has trouble getting up. She has – and it's also 1964 and a 62-year-old woman in 64 was, was more like a 72-year-old woman so now who had know. not had a lot of exercise, you know. Uh, it was not part of the culture. And here so. you are a woman only in your, in your 40s playing yeah. this character. yeah. Yeah. So you invented this osteoporosis and the yeah, other manifestations I just thought it would, yourself. Yeah, I thought it would just sort of – and I also wanted her – I give her a rather ravaged voice also. She she's, has sort of a terrifying voice. She sort of uh, very rough and almost barking at times uh, because I'd heard 
an interv- I'd heard a, not really an interview, but a clip of Mother Teresa once on the news. And she sounded like a Romanian truck driver. She had this very coarse, very destroyed voice. And I thought, well, of course, she's been saving thousands and thousands of lives every year of her life by, you know, barking out these orders to all her minions uh, and and dealing very quickly with a lot of, you know, hair-raising situations. And, of course, she doesn't no, – no saint ever probably really sounded like a saint because they've worked too hard all their lives. Now, you know? when you were – creating in your mind these these uh, characteristics of, of Sister Aloysius. Did you share that with Doug Hughes, the director, or with John Patrick Shanley? No, it came over time. Uh-huh. Uh, what Doug did, I mean, he, he's just about the best director in the world. Everybody in New York City wants to work with Doug Hughes. I worry about his health because literally every producer, every actor, every designer, everyone wants to work with Doug Hughes. And uh, Doug was incredible with us because he understands uh, how to keep the tension going, how to how to build it honestly, and uh, I would have made Aloysius much softer, much slower, much more noble because I I have that little bit of Greer Garson in me. You know, I all actors want their characters to be liked and understood, and that is not the point of Sister Aloysius, and so Doug. Every day of rehearsal increasingly made her more and more appalling, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel like he spoon-fed the role to me in many ways because he just stayed on me in the most tender and he's so funny and he just knows exactly what to say. He never over-talks it. He just knows how to drop these things in that, that, that sort of explode in your brain and you go from there. It's a very different character from – the role which perhaps until now brought you the greatest acclaim, which was your role in The Heiress almost 10 years ago. Now, exactly 10 years ago. Um, and, 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 I, and, and for which you won the Tony. Yeah. Um, I read that you had recently seen the videotape of do, of you, yourself doing The yes, Heiress. Yes. And you, you didn't like the oh, experience. Oh, I thought it was terrible. I finally – went to see it. What prompted you to go and see it? Because I wanted a friend of mine who, who had not seen it to see it and I thought, well, it's time. I mean, they had wanted to see it and I said, well, mm. I'll go with you and and um, and I just thought, oh, what am I doing with my voice and how did I get away with that and whoever let me, you know, it just but it's also the when you see something on tape like that it's, I think that play, uh, more than some plays, well, no, every play, you've got to be in the room with it. You've just Your performance got to was be pitched the... for something very different yes. than seeing a yeah, close-up. Yeah, a flat yeah, uh, video of – yeah. Do you have that experience? You've done television and film work, though you've concentrated largely on the stage. Do you have issues when you look at yourself on film in general or was it that you were looking at a piece, at, at material that was not created to be on I film? I think I was just for- forgetting that it was not created for film and that I was playing to the back row. It wasn't even that it was too big or too large. It just – there was a innate theatricality about it that seemed false to me on that little television screen. But I'm sure in the room – I mean – People liked it. It must have been, you know, I must have done something right with it. But but was that issue of scale? We mentioned earlier that that uh, doubt began off Broadway in the small theater at Manhattan Theater Club, and you 
had to move it into a larger venue. Did you have to alter your performance? For, for Not that you're in the largest of Broadway houses. The Kerr is actually one of the most intimate. Yeah. But, but did you have to change what you were doing to adjust yeah, for that? We went and, from 299 seats to about 937 seats. So we, we tripled the size. And I – Honestly, MTC, it was kind of a cakewalk. It's 90 minutes long. I'm used to O'Neill and Brecht and, you know, big, long, huge things where you're just sweating bullets out there for hours. And at Manhattan Theater Club, it was so intimate. And you did the energy level uh, that was required was completely manageable and doable. But as soon as we got to the Kerr, I realized to my surprise, I don't know why I didn't anticipate this, but it really does take uh, three times the amount of energy. And it's not because you're shouting more or because it's just that connection with uh, 600 more people hmm. than you had at MTC. It's, a, it's almost like a spiritual energy that is required to just make sure no one is left out. And uh, uh, also, it, the experience now, Shanley said the most wonderful thing about the difference between the two productions because as we grow now at the Walter Kerr, he said it is now almost a gladiatorial experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go after each other in a way that we never could have in that small little underground theater at Manhattan Theater Club. It's opened up to the universe now. It's it's quite large. <laughs> well, between the two houses, the small house and this house, other than maybe volume level, so you can reach that last row, which is much further back of the mm-hmm. wall of the curve than it would be elsewhere. Um, what else do you have to change in your performance in order to to convey your your role to this larger audience? Do you, do you have to change your actions in any way? Do you have to change anything else? Not much. It's really not about changing things it's i think it li- it literally is about intensifying things it's uh um you the the aura of these people has to glow brighter is the only way i can put it and uh i think as our muscles are exercised with this play because it's a four very strong actors meat eaters you know and uh i think we we're just learning how to play it in a way that we we hadn't gotten to yet at Manhattan Theater Club. And still, still learning. Still learning really? and growing, and the muscles are getting exercised in a way now that we can we can flex them in ways with each other we couldn't before. But it's not about huge changes. Changes. It's very subtle, the differences. But there's an intensity that has grown, and I think anyone who saw. It early on at MTC and now at the Walter Kerr would agree that it's, uh, it's, it's growing. Howard made reference a moment ago to your television, your film work, movies like The Perfect Storm and Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, most recently Ocean's 12, Erin Brockovich, and a lot of TV work. In Night Shyamalan's uh, Signs and The Village, which uh, is the o- only time I've gotten to work twice with the director is Knight and Steven Soderbergh, which is fun. But you consider yourself first and foremost, I, I've, I've heard, a, a theater actress. You, mm-hmm. you prefer that to, to film or television? Oh, yes. How, how, how come? Why, why so? Well, I, number one, it's, it's how I was raised and, uh-huh. you know, nourished. And I love the ideas and the language of theater. To me, that's – I'm not a particularly articulate person. And to be able to go on stage for – 90 minutes or two hours or four hours in some cases and be wildly articulate, you know, speaking the words of O'Neill or Shakespeare or 
Ibsen or Shaw or, you know, it's a, it's a, you get to be really, really bright. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you never have to look for the word. And um, with film, I'm just, I've just, I'm a slow learner and I've just now done enough film that I'm starting to enjoy uh, understanding that the audience really is two feet away and in that little round bit of glass. The, you know, the uh, television. The, 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 or, or, or the, the camera. Uh, or the, the, camera, film, camera the film lens. camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, learning how to really it's, – it's so much fun to get to be that subtle. And it's, in film, it's all in the eyes. It's all in the eyes. And uh, on stage, uh, with no editing, it's, it's all of you. You know, well, yeah. it's a very different dynamic, obviously. Yeah. A live audience in a big theater versus a small audience in a living room watching a TV or a movie theater. Yeah. Um, does that call on a different uh, skill set from you? Do you, do you as, as an actor, do you have to act differently, obviously, for, for a camera? Well, I just – I am learning how to – because you know, they always say, oh, theater actors are too big on, on – Film and I remember I had a wonderful meeting with Sidney Lumet once, and he said, "You know, that's not true." He said, "He said on film you can turn purple and hang from the rafters, and people will buy it as long as you mean it, as long as it's committed and it's real and it's true." And I, I do think that's true. And once I sort of heard that, it's not about being too big or too; it's just being true. And I find that on film. You know, you have five or six takes to get it right, which is wonderful because hopefully you can do it in five or six takes. But then that's it. Whereas mm -hmm. in theater, you have five or six months to get it right. Mm -hmm. And you have to wait 24 hours between each take. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in theater, if you, if you, uh, there's no net. And if you fall off the wire, you, uh, you, you got a chance to win them back in the next scene. Or to intensify it, you know, in the next scene and the next night, hopefully you'll be able to have grown. You've invoked the fact that you've had the chance to speak the words of Shakespeare and Shaw and Ibsen and O'Neill and Kushner and others. Tina Howe. Vogel and <laughs> Tina Howe on stage. Um, it's a cliche question, but are there parts that you really still want to play? Are there things in the repertory you, you, you want to get unearthed for yourself? I can't – I'm – you know, people have said things to me, but I can't believe I – I never can believe I'm going to be able to pull something off. Well, what are I, things people think you should play? Well, I've heard – I mean, for years people used to say Blanche Dubois to me and I am not a Blanche Dubois. And, and uh, uh, um, I know – Sweet Doug Hughes was saying that someday we should try a, a glass menagerie, and I, I've never, th ever thought I wanted to to play Amanda. I'm from the South, and I, I, it's it's not exotic to me that play. Well, it's it, not. A, but but why why would you not? It's a great role. Mm -hmm. You are a Southern woman. Mm -hmm. What. What is it about that? Do you, do you resist it on and a certain level? And it's not to say or? that in another five years I won't be chomping at the bit to mm -hmm. do uh, Amanda. But I've, I always found the play so cloying. And I have to say with the production now with Jessica Lange, there's something I understand the, the, uh, with – even with the, some of the flaws of that production, I appreciate the play in a way I never had before. Mm -hmm. And um, – 
I, I would love to have also seen um, uh, Sally Field uh, play the role because I, uh, she is Lorette Taylor-like in her ability to look both uh, uh, ancient and ravaged and, and like a 22-year-old uh, coquette when she turns her face up to the lights, you know. And I, I think uh, if I have anything going for me, with Amanda, that might be what I, I have a childlike face that can can look young and bright and then can look 107. So that that may be Amanda one day. I don't know. How about the M word musicals? You know what? I would love to do a musical uh-huh. someday, but I think you have to do those pretty quick because I've been talking to some of my, my friends who are my age and older who say, oh, I'm so – who are doing musicals and they're just wiped out because it just – it's so – they're so hard. And coming from 90 minutes of doubt, I right. guess, the prospect With no costume changes. <laughs> <laughs> and no tap dancing. Mm-hmm. I also don't have a good voice. I, I have remarkably good pitch, but uh, not much range. So, <laughs> Well, Jerry Jones, currently starring as Sister Aloysius in John Patrick Shanley's Doubt. Thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. John Howard, I enjoyed it immensely. Likewise. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Jerry. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs, as well as all of the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing, are available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>